1: From Crooked Media, this is Unholier Than Thou. I'm your host, Philip Picardi. If you're listening to this episode on Christmas Day, let me just say, wow, Merry Christmas, y'all. And to those who do not observe Christmas, happy almost making it to the end of this incredibly dastardly and godforsaken year. You've got one week left, so buckle up. Last week, we debunked all sorts of myths and fallacies about the star of Christmas, one Jesus Christ. This week, though, I want to talk about the woman who made all of this possible, Mary. You might know Mary as the miraculous virgin who defied all the odds to give birth to her baby boy. Of course, that baby would then become the son of God, spoiler, and go on to shape world religion and politics for centuries. No big. Mary is a beloved figure. All over the world, pilgrimages are made to places where she's believed to have appeared. She also holds ubiquity as the most prominent woman in the Christian faith, a religion that's pretty much all about the guys. But just like there's been some intense revision about Jesus Christ— I was wondering what the Bible really says about Mary. Is it revisionist about her too? In other words, in the famous words of Ty from Clueless, is Mary a virgin who can't drive? To help me find out what may have been lost in translation, I'm welcoming my friend, the feminist theologian Megan Watterson, who's the author of the fantastic book, I Cannot Recommend Enough, Mary Magdalene Revealed. Megan, thanks for being here.
2: I love seeing your face. I love being here with you. So thank you.
1: Likewise. Well, we're talking just ahead of Christmas, which obviously means that people are all over are going to be celebrating the divine birth of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And there's been a whole lot that's been made about the immaculate conception of Jesus. And of course, a lot of that revolves around this idea that Mary is a virgin, which essentially makes Jesus' birth itself a miracle. So I am just wondering— I know that you refer to yourself as a feminist theologian, and I personally take umbrage with the idea that we need to revere virginity. And I'm wondering if you interpret the birth of Christ and the miraculous birth of Christ in the same way that it's been taught by Christian churches all over the world.
2: So it's a brilliant question, and it's a very critical aspect of what Harvard scholar Karen King refers to as the master story. So that idea of the Virgin Mary becoming not only virgin, but immaculate, the ever virgin. So it's really important to look at who that story is serving, right? The agenda behind that story. That whole idea of Mary being virginal didn't actually happen until the fifth century. There was a a council, called the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD, where Mary was declared the Theotokos, which is just Greek for God-bearer. So Mary went hundreds of years before the church was instituted. There was a form of Christianity in the wake of Christ that practiced a form of Christianity we really don't know that much about, and we don't really see that much in practice, but it was absolutely an imperative in this form of Christianity that women were seen as equals. It was the idea that Christ was the liberator, not this blonde, blue-eyed, you know, white man who's going to judge a woman for having sex or having an abortion. This was more the vision of a Christ who was Middle Eastern and cared most about the liberation, meaning the understanding that we all as humans know that no matter where we ranked on the Roman hierarchy of existence, so no matter where we were in terms of external power, we all possessed an equal power with love, like that we are that love and that renders us all equal. So that early form of Christianity that was practiced before Christianity was institutionalized in the 4th century would have had nothing to do with this idea of women, virginity, purity, because that's about power. That's about dominance, right? That's not about seeing clearly with the eye of the heart.
1: Right. It is interesting to hear that once upon a time, Christianity was the religion of outsiders, and that's what made it have such a widespread appeal and what made it catch on with such fervor, right?
2: Right. And these early Christians before the 4th, 5th, and 6th century, when when it was institutionalized by beginning with the Emperor Constantine, these early Christians were sentenced to death if they confessed that they were Christian. That's how radical it was. That's how much of a threat it was to the Roman hierarchy of power and the idea of power right? No one could be greater than the emperor. And here Christ was saying, actually, there's something that's greater than any one of us. And it makes the first, the last, and the last first. And it's this power that is God or that is love that exists within all of us equally.
1: So if this is the master story, how did people in that early version of Christianity, how did they understand that Jesus was the son of God? How could the son of God be brought about by just a plain old regular birth by a woman who wasn't a virgin you
2: know what i mean <laughs> well i mean to me that makes the story so much more potent and so much more okay. so much more real right because if we look at our own human existence it is this crazy cocktail this mix of divinity and humanity right we're we're this crazy broken devastated ego, which so many of us are are feeling so much these days, where our personal identity is being challenged or is being ripped away. So we are that ego, but we're also this resilient, divine, true love that blazes through all of these moments. We are both. So for me, the reality of what it is to be human makes so much more sense with the played out, the experiential, the truth of what that would be for a human woman, right? Like for the blood and the mess of birth, for any woman who's actually given birth knows it is such an absolutely unbelievable paradox of divinity and terror in giving birth. So for me, it makes so much more sense that she would be human, that she would have had sex, that she would have been marginalized. She was a teenager. All these things that she had so little power. She had so little personal power. Of course, that's who God would be born to. You know, the woman on the margins, the teenager that, who's abandoned and without home and is seeking shelter. Of course, that's where the divine would come through. Is is that woman with so little personal power. That's the paradox. I love
1: that interpretation of it too, because, you know, we talk a lot about the miracle of childbirth, right? That any child born healthy and in this world also is considered a miracle by just like our common language. That's how often people talk about childbirth. But also the miracle of this particular story being that a bunch of strangers came together to celebrate the birth of this child and to help this new mother in this inconceivably difficult journey and this exile that she was facing at the time. A bunch of strangers came together to form community and celebrate with her. As you say, offer her shelter, offer her gifts. And that is a miracle in and of itself because all of those people were coalescing and coming together on this, on this fateful night to celebrate the birth of this child, even though society was telling them to do anything but. And that is miraculous.
2: But we don't want to strip that story of the humanity, right? We don't want to yes. distance that story from any one of us by making this something that only happened once in the first century. And to the ever virgin, we want to remember that each one of those Wise men, each, each one of those, including Joseph, who had to really let go of his own egoic identity when Mary was pregnant before they were married. They each had to show up in a way, which I think is the most powerful interpretation of it, or the, the most powerful way to see this story is that each one of them was being guided by something inside of them to show up for this displaced woman. And that to me, is kind of the uncelebrated power that the courage it took for Mary to say yes to the angel Gabriel. Like in so, in so many of the icons, it's like, you know, Mary is way down here and, and Gabriel is like looming large above her. And he's like this huge angel in gold with a, like a gigantic trumpet. And I can understand that interpretation, but I think. The experience of it was something so much more discreet, so much more subversive. It was more the voice of love inside of her. It was like a surge of light from within her heart telling her that this is a child that's meant for her. This is a child that's meant to be born to her. And I love that she had to say yes to it. She had to say yes to that voice inside of her. And I feel like that's what every one of those community members did to show up. They said yes to that same surge of light to be their part of that divine story, which is all about our humanity.
1: Yeah, that idea that the divinity and humanity are connected is something that is so lost in interpretation in this very crucial story. Because even if you're not a Christian, you know, I think one of the things that is kind of hard to understand about Christmas is that even the teachings of Jesus and and how Jesus practiced his life, he wasn't just trying to say, I'm the son of God. He was trying to say, all of us are children of God, right? And in a way, by making Mary this holy, miraculous virgin, we also strip her of her humanity and we place her on this pedestal. And in common parlance, right, we would say that this pedestal is known as the Madonna Complex, right? It literally comes from the, you know, Mary. And I'm wondering what you think the Madonna Complex and the virginization of Mary did to women all over the world. What did the church insinuate by crafting this particular mythology? Around Mary?
2: Well, so I mentioned the agenda behind that master story. What ended up happening from the fourth century to the sixth century was this sort of classic stereotypic dichotomy of creating Mary Magdalene as the penitent prostitute and Mary of Nazareth, Christ's mother, as the ever virgin, the immaculate virgin. So what was created was this polar opposite, which is impossible for any human woman to identify with. And what this established, because during that time, the church had a very clear agenda to take spiritual power and spiritual authority away from women. So that story helped to Distance women from the possibility of being able to hold positions of power. Those two stories, where it's you are the impossible, immaculate, ever virgin, not just that she gave birth without sin, she was also born without sin. Like it kind of added on over the years. And then Mary Magdalene, rather than being Christ's companion, which is how she is referred to in many of the texts that were not included in the formal canonization of the Bible in the fourth century, all these other scriptures refer to her as Christ's companion. And so instead of being his spiritual equal or maybe his successor, she became the penitent prostitute. The detrimental complex that was created then for women is either you're the virgin or the whore. Even if you're not Christian, that still has had an impact on women's capacity to know and experience their own sexuality. And it's also about, very clearly for me in the way I see it as a feminist theologian, it's not about purity at all. It's about dominance. It's about power. And that's what I see being played out in in the structure of the ever-virgin and the penitent whore.
1: Right. And and by cleansing the story of sex, Because if you're saying that Christ was born, the Son of God was born with no sex being involved, it also reinforces the idea that carnal desire is sinful, that sex is somehow not holy or not pure. And that has repercussions for both men and women, right? By understanding if Jesus could exist in this world and we know nothing about his sex life, if we know nothing about his real relationship with Mary Magdalene, how also do men reckon with sexual shame?
2: Absolutely. When I was in seminary, that's definitely one of the moments I remember most was when I was talking about how, of course, Christ would have had to have had sex because if he came to really transform all of human existence, if the idea of salvation really is true or the idea of that he came to experience everything to bring love to everything that it means to be human, of course you would have had to have had sex. And like, it just silenced the room and this woman turned around with like the hairiest eyeball I've ever seen in my life. Like just to suggest that Christ was a sexual being was a radical suggestion. But to me, how could he not? Because he was fully human and fully divine. He was both. So of course he would have had to come and experience everything that it meant to be human. So to me, it's, it's a given. And also it's important to remember or recognize that the whole idea that sex is sinful, that concept didn't exist in his incarnation, like when he, in the first century, that didn't exist. That, didn't, that wasn't formed until the fourth century, the idea that sex was sinful. So that came hundreds of years after he was crucified.
1: Interesting. Yeah.
3: Unholier Than Thou is brought to you by BetterHelp. Phil, do you have anything that's interfering with your happiness?
1: Oh, yes. Just, um, you know the entire pandemic and sitting at home for the past nine months brian um okay. i think that that's been that's been a little bit of a damper yeah i'd say
3: yeah. So, um, I've had a similar experience. I would describe myself as unhappy. Um, but, uh, I don't have to be, I actually, I just, I have a BetterHelp. Uh, and I've actually found it really, really helpful to have someone to, you know, talk things out with. Um, I see the same people every day. So it, it, it's kind of nice to have someone new in the mix, uh, who cool. uh, can listen to my problems with
1: fresh ears. Wow. I support you. Thank you for sharing that. I've heard that BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and that you guys can connect in a safe and private online environment, which is convenient. Mm-hmm. And you can start communicating in under 24 hours. Yeah. And it, it's not self-help, it's professional counseling. Uh, you can send a
3: message to your counselor at any time and you'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Uh, plus, you could schedule weekly video or end phone sessions. And I, I kind of like that part because, like, sometimes I, I just need to like you know, shoot something off really quickly just to get it done. And other times I need to like, really, you know, sit with someone and think things out. Um, And all that, uh, you could do that without ever, you know, going to a waiting room. Uh, BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. So they make it really, really easy uh, to change your counselor and it's free. Um, So it's way more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available.
1: That's great. And obviously, BetterHelp is available for clients worldwide. And there's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. So Their professional counselors specialize in things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. And obviously that whole thing about, you know, sharing your feelings on the internet can be a little scary sometimes, but BetterHelp is entirely confidential. So it's convenient, professional, affordable, safe, and you can check out the testimonials posted daily on their site if you don't take me and Brian at our words. BetterHelp, however, is not a crisis line, just FYI. So many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. And I want
3: you to start living a better life today. So as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com unholy. Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com unholy.
1: Unholier Than That was brought to you by Kin Euphorics. Guys, I have just started drinking kin, maybe for the past three or so weeks, and I kind of can't believe how much I'm obsessed with this stuff. I he cannot chron- stop. I can't stop. I'm a chronic cold brew drinker. And usually that means that around 3 p.m., I'm like walking around my apartment like an angry zombie. And Kin <laughs> is effectively helping to revive my corpse, um, all without having to inject me with another shot of caffeine that interrupts my sleeping patterns. In fact, Ken actually has helped me sleep better because they have a whole sleep tonic for that. But I'll get to that in a second. If you are planning for dry January, if you're trying to cut back on caffeine, or if you just want to cut back on alcohol in general, you really need to look no further than Kin. Kin Euphorix is the first non-alcoholic drink for grown-ups who care about the little things like, I don't know, brain function, hormone harmony, great sex, and de-stressing after an insane day. I care about all of those little things. Cinephorics are stacked with
3: the good stuff and none of the bad. Think aptogenetic herbs and mushrooms that help cure stress in a moment and over time, as well as nootropics that support cognitive function, which means clarity. It means memory. It means creativity, baby. Cinephorics designed three mood-defining drinks for every occasion. It's like the Spotify of beverages. Uh, Phil, you like High Road, right?
1: I love High Road. This is the one that I tend to actually just pour out in a little shot glass and and sip over like, I don't know, the span of like 20 minutes or so. It's an herbaceous flavor. It gives you a feeling of a lifted mind and a relaxed body. It actually helps me focus. So I love to drink this if I'm going to like dive into a long article or a great book. But it's also good for social hour just because you feel kind of like a happy buzz with it, you know? So I reach for it mm-hmm. after a long day. You can add a splash of club soda if you want, or some tonic, maybe just a, a, a nice little squeeze of lime. It's perfect when you're looking for a way to kick back without any of the, you know, mental compromise.
3: Yeah, I like the Kin Spritz because I'm on record as uh, liking sparkly things. Uh, uh, and it's like an Aperol flavored brain boost without the crash or the hangover. So I crack open the Spritz like around 4 p.m. I in my little afternoon slump. It
1: eases me into the nighttime. Very nice. And speaking of nighttime, mm-hmm. Kin also makes Dream Light, which is a boost-free nightcap that tastes sort of like an Amaro and melts away stress. And not to mention, you will sleep like a baby and wake up feeling awesome afterwards. So we've worked out a special deal for the unholier than thou podcast listeners. Receive 15% off plus free shipping on your order of Kin Euphorics. Go to Kin com slash unholy or use code unholy at checkout to claim this deal. That's K-I-N-E-U-P-H-O-R-I-C-S dot com slash unholy yeah something i've often thought about like the idea that we revere childbirth we revere reproduction and procreation but we don't ever revere the act of reproducing or of having sex Dude, it's a very it's very complicated how can you enjoy the fruits of your labor without also <laughs> finding the miraculous things that can exist in the labor itself you know
2: <laughs> exactly exactly
1: <laughs> so there's this this thing that's come out of the Virgin story, which is commonly known as purity culture. But I'm wondering if you can help me trace a little bit of the Christian church's teachings around purity culture and what you think the long-term effects have been that are either positive or detrimental towards the church's development.
2: So (laughs) during this crazy COVID time, I've been binge-watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and then I went on, you know, to Angel. Excellent. So, so profound. There's this quote that I love from Cordelia in Angel, where she says, if a male body was needed for sacrifice and holy- holiness, the world would be atheist just like that. Yes. What she's pointing out is this whole idea of holiness and sacredness being around the virgin female body that has nothing to do with purity. That's the truth of what we might understand. That's if we divest it of the misogyny and divest the whole idea of purity with dominance and power is if we reframe it as a clarity of heart, because then sex truly is sacred because we're, we're clear at heart. We're, we're actually present in our body when we're having it. And that's what makes sex holy is that presence, not who we're having sex with or when or why.
1: Yeah. There is this constant reinforcement of this idea that our sex lives somehow taint us from our full potential as human beings. So if I'm to understand what you're saying, what I think I'm gathering is it's possible and maybe even beneficial to understand one's sexuality, whether that is having sex or not, whatever, you know, your sexuality is, but to be fully in touch with the divine means to also be fully in touch with your body and what your body's desires are, that those are coming from, according to your interpretation, that those desires may also be coming from a divine or spiritual place.
2: Absolutely. In the Gospel of Mary, what's so profound about it is that the fragments of it that we have begin with, there is no such thing as sin. And this is something that Christ is teaching to Mary and all the disciples. There's no such thing as sin. And powers that he reveals to Mary in his gospel that we all contain, the powers later become the seven deadly sins when Christianity is institutionalized. But in Mary's gospel, they're simply powers. So there are aspects of what it means to be human that can hold us in their grip. But if all we need is the presence and awareness in our heart of what's actually true for us. So we want to return to what's true for us, which we contain our own answers of what's true for us. We can't find it outside of us, not even in a priest or a guru or an imam. We actually contain our own truth and our own sacred dialogue with what's true for us from within us. So the most critical thing for us to constantly do is to return inward to the heart, but that means being ferociously embodied. Right and trusting that, that the body doesn't lie, so this idea that sex is sinful didn't come till the fourth century and was institutionalized for a reason. And as the church really rid itself of women and sort of created the the power structure and the hierarchy that mirrored the Roman Empire much more than the early forms of Christianity, the exclusion of women also included the exclusion of the wisdom of the body. So that was detrimental to both women and men, to all of us, to exclude the wisdom of what we can only know through our body.
1: I wonder, like, if the church actually wanted to honor Mary, what would the church look like today?
2: Oh, my goodness. Well, I recently came across this image by Tim Okamura. He's this incredible Brooklyn-based artist, and he has an image of Mary that is like a young African-American teenager in poverty, and the title of it is Courage. And there's this butterfly flying around her, and the beauty and the power, the image returns what's sacred to what's been Seen as vulnerable and powerless. And it returns that divinity that's always been there, that true power of what it means to reconstitute the world. Women, no matter where we rank on, you know, the system of power in our social structures, we reconstitute the world. And so with our bodies. And so I think for me, at, at the very least, There would be a radical equality in terms of who speaks on behalf of who preaches on behalf of the divine. But also for me, which has always been my struggle with getting ordained, it's really going back and adding other narratives to that master story, you know, really adding in voices and adding in the humanity Right, giving Mary back the power of her own body and the wisdom, the courage that she faced by saying yes, you know, to that angel in her heart. So I would love to see it. I mean, it excites me to think that that would be possible. It would be to add more of these stories and to really see the power of what that would be like to have the master story added with all of the women, all of the Marys throughout you know, the centuries who have existed and what they have to say about what it's like to give birth to God. Wow.
1: Well, that was a beautiful and very powerful answer. Megan, thank you so much as always for your wisdom. I can't stress enough how much the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, your book, really changed a lot of things for me and opened my eyes to a whole different world of possibilities that I I really never thought of before. So thank you so much for your work and for your time today. Thank you. Y'all, the end of this episode means the final episode of season one of Unholier Than Thou. Thank you. Thank you for listening. It's been a true joy to publicly display the trauma of my religious upbringing and education with all of you. But no, on a serious note, the best thing about this show has been reading the incredibly heartwarming comments, messages, and reviews from so many of you who have said this show has helped to better reflect or even change their points of view on faith. I'm grateful to you for listening. I'll be back soon for the next season of this show with some great new surprises. And in the meantime, maybe you can give me an early Christmas present by giving us a five-star rating and review so even more people can take a listen. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at PFPicardi. I'll see you in 2021, hopefully in a post-pandemic Joe Biden America. Until then, stay blessed. Than now is a crooked media production. Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Sydney Rapp is our assistant producer, with production support from Ruben Davis. Veronica Simonetti is our sound engineer and editor. The theme song is by suzawa and the show is executive produced by me, Lyra Smith, and Sarah Geismer. Thanks for listening.